Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Sarah Robinson. Sarah Robinson is a futurist specialising in social change. She is particularly interested in the role religion, culture and other deep cognitive frameworks play in the way individuals and societies imagine the future and choose their strategies for approaching and managing change. Sarah's skill set includes trend analysis, scenario development, futures research, social change theories, systems thinking, and strategic planning. She holds an MS in Future Studies from the University of Houston and a BA in Journalism from the USC Annenberg School of Communication. And she is a professional member of both the Association of Professional Futurists and the World Future Society. Sarah has done futures consulting and presentations for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the Aspen Institute, the Brainerd Foundation, NARAL, Demos, and other groups. She was a Schumann Fellow at Alternet.org and a Senior Fellow at the Campaign for America's Future. Her work has appeared online at New York Magazine, Salon, The New Republic, The Huffington Post, Daily Cos, and other publications, and she makes frequent media appearances. Sarah lives in Seattle. Welcome to FuturePod, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's great to be here. Thanks, Sarah. So question one is the Sarah Robinson story. So how did Sarah Robinson become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? I think there's some degree to which a lot of us who become futurists were sort of raised to it. We come from families that have this way of thinking. In my case, my grandfather was a rocket scientist uh, back in the 40s and 50s. And he was uh, A real rocket scientist. A real rocket scientist for the U.S. Navy. <laughs> He's a PhD physicist from the University of Iowa, and he was a professor later in his career. He was a professor of physics at Southern Illinois University, and he wrote these articles about, you know, I, I've, my, the family churns them up every once in a while in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. And there's a 1962 article in which he predicted the cell, the, the, our, our smartphones, you know, well, someday we'll have this gadget in our pocket that will do all of this. Uh, he would do these wonderful things. He worked on sonar. He worked on dolphins. I mean, amazing things. So that was grandpa. And then my stepfather was an architect who specialized in land planning on a very large scale for people like the mm-hmm. Forest Service and for people developing master plans for planned communities you know, on a, on a very grand scale. And of course, when you're doing this kind of master planning, you're working at 20-year horizons, 30-year mm-hmm. horizons. How are we yeah. going to economically balance this? How many fire stations and schools do we need? You know, all, of, all of this stuff. And I grew up working summers in his office. And this was the family business, was this kind of planning. So that, you know, that, that, those horizons were always present with us. So, and my mother was in politics, again, water planning, California water planning, <laughs> which is, a, you know, water's a big deal in California. Is. So it was, um, you know, there was always this perspective, this foresighted anticipatory thinking that was part of the way our family just sort of operated. I didn't, but I didn't go into futures as a field. I spent 20 years in Silicon Valley which again, a very foresighted place. And toward the and it was after I had left that I ran into John, John Smart, who was a brilliant futurist, 
from California at a conference once. And he pulled me at dinner time when it came time to sit to dinner. He grabbed me, sat me down next to him, and he said, I have to talk to you. And we, three hours later, he had talked me into becoming a futurist. Yeah. And six weeks later, I was enrolled in the, in the, in the Houston program, and away we went. So that was in 2005, 2006. And I got my master's. And that was, so that was kind of how it all happened. And at the same time I was doing this, that same time frame of 2005, six, I was also getting very involved with, um, with blogging, which was a very big deal in American politics at that time. And I was blogging for a website that was really looking at the evolution of the American extremist movements, which was just gathering steam, you know, kind of came and went and came and went through the eighties and nineties and was having another resurgence and watching with concern at the way that this was evolving. And as I was going through grad school, I was looking at the ways these people were looking at the future versus the way other people were looking at the future. And also the patterns by which extremist groups and terrorist groups emerge and work themselves out and wind themselves down. And I became fascinated with these patterns and began matching up what I, what I was seeing on the ground with these patterns that, that various researchers over the years had, had put together. And it became this very predictive, you know, there's a lot you can predict about the patterns of this behavior. Mm. So, um, yeah, I got really involved in the kind of the way as a system, how does this work? So that was my, my trip as a futurist. That was how it all kind of worked out. I've done other futuring besides. I've done a lot of environmental work. I've done some rural futuring work recently that I just love. Reproductive rights and women's rights. Um, I, you know, I've kind of worked in all those areas, but this is the one I, I keep coming back to. This is the touchstone. And of course, right now in this moment, we are having a moment, which I'm sure we'll get to. In terms of the journey, once you, you know, once you encountered John Smart and his big brain and big aspiration, um, were there other people that were important to you in that transformation process? Yeah, I owe a lot of people. Of course, you know, being at Houston at the time, Peter Bishop, and Andy Hines were, you know, were absolutely pivotal. They made me who I am mm. in a lot of ways. Trying to think, you know, there were, I had mentors that kind of emerged that I never had before. Um, one of them was Rick Perlstein, who's a historian and author who has written some best New York Times bestselling books um, about the evolution of the conservative movement in the United States, starting with Goldwater and moving through Reagan. And, um, and Rick has been a good friend and a huge amount of support. Um, Dave Nywert, who is my co-blogger, who's also written wonderful books on the American right, was hugely supportive. At a crucial point in my career, I got, um, a, got financial and other kinds of support from Bill Moyers, who is a popular PBS um, personality here, again, in the United States. And he was, yeah, he kind of stepped in. I got this wonderful message one day in my email saying, next time you're, you're in, I love what you do next time you're in New York, let's have lunch. Wow. And yeah, which was, uh, I didn't breathe for, I think about three days after that. <laughs> uh, so I went to New York and we had lunch and, and he was, he provided me with a lot of opportunities. So yeah, there's, I, I, owe, I owe thanks to him. So yeah, it's been, I've gotten a lot of really wonderful support from people. It's, it's been some of the most fun I've ever had in my life these last 15 years. Yeah, the community is in. I mean, again, I'm a little bit like you in the sense that I came to the field almost as like a third career. Mm -hmm. It's an. I mean, I find it an interesting community because while it's a small community and and a somewhat idiosyncratic community, that I, again personally found them as a very generous community, a very giving community, a very prepared to share community. You know, they don't hold their knowledge close to their chest. How do you find it? I've I've found the same. 
I joined the APF. There's an APF listserv that I joined early on. And yeah, it was really wonderful that somebody would come in and say, I've got this job. I, I need to know, you know everything I can know about this domain in the next two weeks. And I, I don't operate here. You know, what, what should I be reading? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, you know, what's the top line? And people would come up and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, seven years ago, somebody did a future study that kind of relates to that. And you need, here it is. Here's the link. And you know, here's the, here are the people you need to talk to. And you know, it was wonderful, that kind of collaborative you see it among journalists sometimes as well, but not yeah. to the degree that you see among futurists. And it was, it was welcoming. It was lovely. Yeah, no, it's one of the, I mean, I always maintain that it's one of the, if we ever try to board the knowledge up, then we'll have no effect. And we just have to get out there and share it. And if we have it, we share it. And, you know, we have to, we can't, I mean, personally think we can't come to futures as a scarcity mentality. No. And the world is so big and our profession is so small that, you know, if I know if I need to talk to somebody about the future of Bitcoin or the future of ISIS or, you know, I, or the future of postage, chocolate, you know, luxury goods, I have friends, right, that I can go to and, um, you know, call them up, drop them a note and say, you know, what do I need to know about this? And they'll set me on the path. Right. Thanks, Sarah. Next question, the one where I encourage the guest to talk to the listeners about, a, you know, a framework or a tool or an approach that they think is central to how they do their work in this space. And I encourage the guest to explain the tool or explain the framework and how they use it and how others might possibly use it. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Having, you know, come out of the Houston program, um, of course, I was trained in the Houston Futures Framework. That it was de- developed largely by Peter and I, and I believe Andy, and which is a really wonderful, th- thorough. You know, if you just walk through the steps, you're not going to miss anything. Mm. And so, whenever I'm doing a futures project, I always go back to that list because it makes sure that I'm hitting all the things I need to hit, and I'm not going to miss any source of possible information about the future. But um, I find that that having done that, there are some things. There are you know, as with every futurist, there are some tools in the box that I'm most comfortable with. One of them is I'm always looking, I put a lot of emphasis on finding the drivers. Mm-hmm. And I find that no matter how complex the situation is, you're only ever going to come down to maybe six or seven drivers and sometimes fewer than that. Never more than 10, you know, but usually it's, you know, five, six, seven major drivers that are, that, you know, we're, we're trained in systems thinking. And so, you know, the system it has these high leverage points and these are where the drivers are located. And these are the places where if you flip the switch in the system, you will get change, maximum change for minimum effort. So that's a really important, that's that when I'm looking, because I can write scenarios that, that, that are all about flips and reversals on the drivers. Those were, that's what drives scenario, scenario development. But also when I'm looking at those drivers, I'm, I'm using steep analysis to make sure that I'm hitting all the drivers in the you know, various domain, possible domains. I'm using CLA, again, to make sure that these drivers are hitting on all four levels. Yeah, so that, that, and that's kind of the main, the main thing to make sure I'm covering all bases and I'm seeing things in, in, the, in the entirety before I start trying to figure out what's going to happen. The other thing um, I'm really enamored of in, in, in analysis of history, and I get my friends, the historians, poke fun at me because they think this is crazy, but um, I'm really big on cycle theories of history. 
um, Strauss and Howe How in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're, they're you know, four phase, you know, secular, secular generational an- analysis. Prove it's, it's not an infallible and it has its weaknesses, but I find that in looking at the way history unfolds and what people are going to be wanting at any given point in the future, mm. I think that, you know, that, that, has, that has yet to fail me badly. <laughs> so I, I, that's one I, I go back to. I mean, Sahail and uh, Johan Geltung wrote a wonderful book called Macro Historians, and it's wonderful because there are multiple cyclical of the you know, there are multiple theories of change, and they are and and they are theories of change. Everything from you know Sarkar's social cycle to Haldun's, you know, the Bedouins at the gate kind of thing. And to me, they were always the power in them for me is the narrative form they give people to explain what you know, almost to tell their collective story through time. It just it gives a structure and a set of archetypes that people can step into. Absolutely. And you see these reflected in, you know, in, li- in the popular literature. Yep. If you think about the archetypes, and of course, Strauss and Howe posited four generational archetypes, you know, the, the civic, the nomad, um, the prophet, and what was that, the, the artist, right? Mm. And the way it layers up, if you talk about the old, the grizzled old prophet, which is the old boomer generation, basically, as we, as we are becoming, and, and it is, it's Obi-Wan, right? It's Merlin, it's Gandalf. You know, that's, that's, that is the, that is a prophet in, in, in old age. And the next generation down will be a nomad, Gen X type, who will be the, 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 the grizzled, brave, hard-bitten leader, who will be Aragorn, who will be Han Solo. Right in the in the in this in these stories they recur, Uther, you know, and and then if you step down and then you then you've got the hero who is always of a civic generation like the millennials, and it's Luke, it's Arthur, you know, it's Frodo, you know, it's and, and so you see the if this is as you talk about archetypes, you know, these are recurring archetypes in our literature, and you get these generational constellations that line up just so only at certain times, only every eighty years, and big things become possible because you have that configuration of leadership. And we are in that moment right now, which is really exciting. And we are we are starting to see you know, that the last forty years are flipping and changing, and the individualism that has prevailed since nineteen eighty, since Reagan, is coming apart. You know, we're done with that. That part of the cycle is over, and now we're entering the collectivist part of the cycle, where things must be done for the greater good. And so it's it is an exciting time. And but as a futurist, I'm walking around telling people, no, 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 we're in something different now. And things that made sense 10 years ago are not going to be making sense at all now or certainly 10 years from now mm. because our imperatives are completely different. And because the narratives of that old, that old individualist era have been, they've been, they run aground, they're bankrupt, they don't work anymore. And 40 years hence, you know, the narratives of this part of the cycle will run aground and be bankrupt and the next individualist part of the cycle will be born. And this is one of the great insights, I think, of Strauss and Howe, who, by the way, also give huge tips of the hat. They were very much aware of the Schlesingers and you know, a lot of these other Kondriative, you know, these other people who have come up with cycle theories. Mm. And they, yeah, they, they incorporate a lot of that. Third question, Sarah. How you sense make the emerging futures around you? You've you've already talked about some of the things that you're paying attention to, but this is this notion of Sarah Robinson, human being, like anyone else, is 
we are we are in a series of emerging futures and we're paying attention to some some excitus and some scarers and that kind of thing. So I'm I'm interested as to how you you know, what you're paying attention to, what you're imagining, what your sort of you know, emerging scenarios are, and uh, to talk to those. Okay. We are having a really, in addition to being at the end of this 80-year cycle, there's some deeper things going on that have to do with the change in energy regime. Uh, Thomas Hummer Dixon mm. at the University of Toronto, yep. you know, ta- in, in the upside of down, talks about how empires rise and fall on their control, on their ability to control the energy resources of their era. And, you know, the Romans rose on roads and aqueducts because it enabled them to control the sunshine that fell in the Mediterranean basin and, and, and generate enough surplus to build roads and aqueducts and armies, but also coliseums and, you know, all the, all the other fabulous things that they built. And the Dutch built an empire on wind and the, and the English built one on coal and the United States has built one on oil. And of course, oil is passing. And so part of this, this particular next 10 years, you know, this, this crisis era that we're going through is the moving away from fossil fuels. And it's not just the fuels themselves. It's all the technologies, cars and airplanes. And- the 50 slaves that each of us live off, the 50 slaves that support our life. That's right. And um, so you know, we're, we're moving away from that. And, the, and all the infrastructure and all the people profiting from the infrastructure you know, who have relied on it, all of that is shaken and it will fall and there will be, you know, bad losers and there will be new winners. And that, and that world is being created right now with every Tesla that rolls off the, you know, the, <laughs> the line. So, you know, every, every new, you know, um, so solar panel and, and wind turbine that goes up, you know, is, is another step toward that future. And, we'll, and between now and 2030, you know, that, that revolution will happen. It's, it's going to happen dizzyingly fast. And so having right now, you know, people are trying to cope with it and there's going to be this, well, part of what we're seeing politically when I talk about change resistance movements is there's an almost perfect overlap if you look around the world between fundamentalisms, fascisms, you know, authoritarian regimes, whether they're religious or political and fossil, the fossil fuel economy, whether you're going from Texas to Tehran, you know, it's all the same. That economy tends to set up, it's metaphorically, it's, it's a vessel for this kind of belief system. And as, as the fossil economy breaks down, the belief system that sustained it and that thrived within it is also facing an existential crisis. And I think a lot, you know, what we're seeing with Trumpism, for instance, and a lot of these other right-wing movements that are emerging around the world is anxiety around you know, that, that kind of authoritarian central power, which is what oil gave us, right? A centralization of power, of economic power, of capital. You know, all of that is crumbling. And we're moving towards something else, and it's inexorable. It's going to happen. You know, you can't stop it, but they're trying. And so that's a, I think that's at the fundamental root of a lot of the con- the conflicts that we're seeing. There's this large, deep, historic, you know, two hundred year historic kind of 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 change level of change. Um, something deep in the bedrock is shifting. That's not just the usual eighty year cycle. If you look at history in England again, you know, I mean, we know you know when coal emerged. And, you know, the new middle class emerged, that the old politics fell apart. That's right. Exactly. The old sort of the old sort of aristocratic and Whig politics collapsed. And that's right. The emergence of organized labor. Absolutely. But for factories, we probably don't have a labor movement being established. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the religious paradigms change. You know, Catholicism was the state religion of feudalism. 
and it gave it had to give way to Protestantism in the 1500s because this new mercantile because machinery you know and the, and the whole the, the enlightenment the whole revolution was happening but we were also getting new energy sources and new collective you know much more collective ways of organizing capital and labor that didn't you know feudalism didn't work anymore you had to organize things in a different way and Protestantism metaphorically you know, and kind of the bottom level of your, you know, the epistemological level of your CLA analysis was provided a, bed, a much better bedrock, you know, for that that kind of thing. And of course, now Protestantism is passing, and we have other much more decentralized, you know, forms of faith. I, I hesitate to even call them that, but we, you know, a lot of what we're seeing are these sort of online people are getting sucked into these sort of online you know, faith narratives hmm. like QAnon. <laughs> Um, but other ones as well, you know, that um, what, what, what replaces religion becomes an interesting question for me right now. And most of the world doesn't even follow one of the Christian forms of religion. If you, That's right. If you look at us heading towards 8 billion people, most people come from another religious base. And the, I think that as some of those bases, especially the Asian ones, I think are much more decentralized in a lot of ways. And I think... The reason that the West has been looking east for the last fifty years is because we, you know, we realize that we kind of reached the end of the line with some of our religious paradigms, and that we need a new framework. And so we're beginning to look around the world and think, you know, so Americans got involved with Buddhism, you know, and, and Hinduism, and you know, the sixties and all the hippies and all of that. But there's been this borrowing, you know, and we're looking around trying to find what what's the spirituality that clicks that describes this new networked world that you know, the internet is really the metaphor for. What does that look like? And it will be a much more universalist religion as more and more of the, of the world gets, you know, we're all networked. We're all in the same network now. And how do we process that spiritually? How, we, how do we build community? What do we owe each other? What is the purpose of a good life? You know, what is, what's our mission? Why are we here? What is divine? What do we hold sacred? You know, these questions are all up for grabs right now. And it's really exciting. Again, the organized religions are hierarchies that hold on to truth and hold on to the past. But at the same time, you're talking about generational change and social change. I mean, and you are interested in religion. I mean, where, you know, what are the scenarios for where religion goes? I haven't, I have not been called upon to give enough thought to that, but it's a question that fascinates me because I am a person of faith. All I know is we're at the end of the line, hmm. you know, for, for a lot of what has been those, those traditions. It's been a holder, as you say, of truth and tradition. And our, our, tr- our sense of truth is changing. And I think whatever new religions emerge will have to give us other guides as to what truth looks like. God knows we need them right now. Um, and religion is actually a wonderful, it's a wonderful repository for any information that you want reproduced through generations with tremendously good fidelity. You know, if you want, if you're in Indonesia and you want to make sure the waterworks, you know, are, are maintained by, by every generation in the same way, you embed it in your religion, which is what they've done. Hmm. You know, it's, this is what you, you tending the waterworks is is part of it tied in with their rituals, their goddess rituals, and that's what you need to do. And it's, so, and and they tend to waterworks very faithfully because every generation is carefully taught yep. within the context of the of the religion. This is what the gods would have you do, and it is a very effective way. I, I want to see it used and used well, not the way QAnon is using it. Yeah. Plus, Taleb, in his conversations about anti-fragile, he places tremendous stock in how religions have created, as you say, fidelity and social cohesion through the centuries. Absolutely. Again, Taleb maintains things that have survived for thousands of years, there's a fair chance they're going to hang around. They're not going to go away. And odds are good that they've hung around inside a religion or within close proximity to a religion. 
because there's nothing else that quite carries the, carries the thread for so long. Cool. Thanks, Sarah. Fourth question is the communication question, which I ask Sarah, how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what you do? I have to say, I don't think I'm very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've tried working on the elevator speech for years. But what it comes down to is humans are obsessed with the future. Our, you know, our brains are organized to be predictive. We try really hard because so much of our survival depends on making good choices. And certainly our morality toward each other, upon which our survival depends, you know, depends on us being able to assess, accurately assess the outcomes of our choices. So what I do as a futurist is, you know, we can't know anything about the future, but we can make educated guesses. And we have developed a lot of fields that inform and educate those guesses. When we study history, when we study psychology, when we study science, you know, many, many of the formal fields of endeavor are aimed at honing our judgment and packing us with knowledge that we can use to assess things that happen to us and make some kind of reasonable judgment about what's going to happen as an, as an outcome. Mm. You know, we try very statistics. You know, it's the mathematical version of trying to extrapolate. You know, what's, what, you know, here's what happened in the past. Here's what we extrapolate going forward. Stats is what, what gives you that. You know, as a futurist, my job is to systematically, you know, methodically move through these various ways of knowing about a situation and put together the best possible, most educated possible guess about what is likely to happen. And, to, and then to take that information and turn it into, sto into stories, into scenarios that help people visualize, here's what could happen. And they're not predictions, but they, they help you visualize what could happen and give you a basis to start talking about what you need to be doing in, in, in order to respond. That's very much the predictive, responsive, adaptive frame. But would you, and I'm sure you do, when would you pivot to the normative, desired, wished for, hoped for process? Because that's not that process, is it? No, it's not that process. But of course, I, I came up through Houston, which is a very strictly empirical school. Sure. And uh, of course, I came out of a journalism background, which again, you know, you really need to know your priors <laughs> when you're going into, you know, a good journalist needs to know. You don't have to be objective, but you have to be fair and you have to be accurate. And so you need to be able to take that step back. So the empiricist frame is the one I'm most comfortable with. And frankly, the one I need to stay in because I am working within a highly normative space. Mm. And I'm working specifically in center-left politics, which means that I lose credibility with both, you know, with people on all sides. If I can't maintain a certain detachment, if I get too rah-rah for my side or their side, you know, I have to keep that step back. I do absolutely have my own values, you know, that my, my values are progressive and I do, I believe in democracy. <laughs> you know, what I, there's a lot of, you know, I believe that, that, you know, government has a powerful role to play in the betterment of people's lives. I think I've, you know, I've seen that in generations of my own family. 
the investments that, you know, that Uncle Sam has made and, you know, my father get, going to college on the GI Bill and my grandfather in his physics, you know, as a, being a physicist for the U.S. Navy and, you know, all of these, I grew up in a VA financed house, you know, I had union, I grew up on union health insurance. I, I went to the finest public schools in the world, which the California schools were. You know your prize, don't you? Right. And, you know, the, the gov- government investment made me and my family what we are. And so I believe in it. I know it works. So this, you know, I cannot be, be a conservative because I, I know that this works. Um, so, yeah, I have this normative lean, you know, that says that, you know, that, that rejects a lot of the premises of the conservative side. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm hanging with, talking to, you know, dealing with conservative people a lot. And I have tremendous respect for, for who they are and why they are how they are, even though it's, I know it's different from how I am. I was raised in a small cow town in the High Sierra, with heavily Mormon and very conservative, very conservative. And so, and my family was heavily evangelical. Um, I had some, you know, real, real hardcore, you know, far right people in my family. So, you know, this is, I speak conservative as a first language and I understand what's in their hearts and I still know and love many people who fall on that side. So yeah, there's, there's that normative line I have to walk and the perspective changes depending on where I'm standing in the system at the moment. Mm. It's a hard one. The conversation I had with Peter Bishop uh, about just before we had the election mm-hmm. was I asked Peter the social historian question of what are the scenarios for America returning to something approaching a middle ground because mm-hmm. it is hard to see how those scenarios could start oh no i have an answer for that I'd, I'd love to take on that question in fact i'd love to take it on with peter i think there's a lot of possibility and i think i think joe biden's doing his best to make that moment happen people are exhausted you know the polarization we realize exists because there were people who chose to make it exist mm. This was not something that just happened to us organically. This was a choice that was made back in the eighties, you know, by a certain group of people who have names, who did think, you know, who did things that can be pointed to, you know, been documented in history. They sought to divide us because it made it easier to basically strip away all the social capital and financial and cultural capital that the United States had been building up in the post-war era. We were a phenomenally rich country and we had made huge investments over many generations in becoming so. And I think in the 80s, there were a lot of people who looked around and said, yeah, we can privatize that. We can privatize that. We can take this away. And well, yeah, why, why do we have these national parks? We should be drilling there. You know, and there was this very avaricious, you know, kind of, you know, exploit it all mentality. And it was in those people's interest to have us divided and unable to defend, you know, the, the, this huge common wealth that we had built up. That's, you know, they broke us up so they could suck it away. And, they, and, and now they've sucked away pretty much everything that makes America work. We can't educate our kids. You know, we can't do science. We can't manage COVID. You know? <laughs> and you were looking at around at the wreckage you know, because so much of this has been mm. undermined. And this wealth that we had, this knowledge, we put men on the moon, for God's sake. You know? And you know, we can't do that anymore. Why? You know, oh, these people. And I think a lot of people are exhausted. And they're looking around. And I think people voted you know, for Biden. Largely, a lot of you know, independents went largely for Biden, and the reason was because they're tired of this. And you know, mm. we're seeing the right for you know, they're getting really raw and ugly for the places they want to take us. And a lot of people said, "No, we're not doing that." I think seventy percent of Americans agree on seventy percent of everything, and that's always been true, and it will continue to be true. And right now, I think we're paying more attention to that fact. You know, we've come too close to having it dissolve the country, corrode the country, and we can look around the world at Hungary and Turkey and the Philippines and India 
you know, places where democracy is in much worse shape than it is here and see that future for ourselves. And I think a lot of people are thinking very hard right now about whether or not they want to continue to foster this polarization because this is where it's taking us. Thanks, Sarah. We're at the last question, Mm. which is uh, the open question. You foreshadowed that you've been doing work with the rise of extremism. Is that something that you think you want to go further into? The question I get asked a lot lately, the explanation I find myself giving people a lot lately, has to do with whether or not this continues, kind of continuing what I was just talking about, about whether or not this continues. The thing about the right that's, there are a few patterns at work here. There are deep patterns that these movements, I said, you know, kind of fall into. And one of the patterns is that crazy distills, that as as groups become more extreme, you know, every step they take toward the extreme side, there will be a saner tranche within that group that will look at that and say, no, I didn't sign on for this. I'm leaving. And they leave. And having left, this is they were kind of the sane ballast, right? And so the group can get even a little more scary, crazy and move even farther to the extreme. And so they take the next step, and the next group, next tranche of sane people yep. left breaks off, and, and which, of course, removes that ballast, and so they're even more free to move even farther to the extreme. And I think we are seeing this, and so the hotter it gets, basically, the more molecules boil off, and the, the more condensed the crazy gets. Mm. Um, and and you know, ideally, this, this spiral continues until you have half a dozen people you know, standing on street corners yelling about aliens. I think we are seeing that that cycle. We've been seeing it go through the Trump years. The Republican Party in 2020 was a smaller party than it was in 2016. Um, since the after the ele- Trump lost the election, uh, a lot there were a lot of people who fell off because he didn't look strong to them anymore. After the January 6th insurrection, there were a lot of people who fell off because this really wasn't what they signed on for. You know, this kind of disorder, um, this assault you know, on a branch of government, was not not what they wanted. I think the second impeachment trial has has caused more to fall away. The Republican Party has lost several hundred thousand registrations just in the last month, uh, most of them in swing states. So this is you know, this is a sign to me that 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 the crazy distills pattern is operative here, and is probably accelerating. And that's a good thing because it, it bodes ill for the continued presence of these people in our political. They will, they will always be with us. There's 12 to 15%, according to Robert Altemeyer at the University of Manitoba. There's um, 12 to 15% of the population who are congenital right-wing authoritarian followers. They will always be with us. But um, there, the, the expanded group, the people who are allied with them, are beginning to peel away. Mm. So that's, I, I see that, you know, seeing that a positive. I read a piece that placed it back to when the Dixiecrats left the Democratic Party, that was that was the point at which the, if you like it, the, the kind of the right wing within the Democratic Party, which the Democrats had had to pragmatically manage. Right. For, for, and they lost in the 60s right. with the Johnson. Right, Nixon. It was Nixon's Southern strategy, right. That, that kind of caused, you know, the fundamental north-south centre outside split to become... You actually took a huge, a, a a huge chunk that, if you like, it was trying to coexist inside a party and put them with another natural group. Right. 
And you, you had conservative Democrats, you had liberal Republicans. And after the 90s, you didn't have that anymore. Mm. It, through the, it, starting in the 70s, you know, it started. And by the early 90s, by the Gingrich Revolution in 94, it was gone. Um, and the, the parties had hardened into a liberal and a conservative party, which they had not been before. I mean, what you're saying is that they're going to continue to harden until what? I think, no. I think what happens when you have a failed party, uh, and the Republicans, you know, the this, this split being caused by the, the impeachment, uh, where we were seeing a split within the Republicans, they are on very wobbly ground as a party. And there's going to be a, ba- you know, a battle, and either the corporatists or the, or the Trumpists are going to win it. But whatever they end up with, it's going to be a, a greatly reduced party. And a lot of the people who feel left behind, especially if it's the corporatists, are going to move into the Democrats, at least for the short term, as they already, a lot of them already have. A lot of them you know, decamped and voted for Biden. And they will come into the Democratic Party. Um, and we will have a conservative wing of the Democratic Party, and everything that matters politically in the United States will be will be a conversation that happens within the party. Um, I don't think that's a stable configuration over the very long term. I think that lasts for a few years, maybe through the next cycle, and then what happens is we break off. You know, there's a big cry right now for for a centrist party, and I'm friends with a lot of people who are trying to put that together. It's it's an interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, I kind of position myself in that in that crowd because I'm. Hmm fascinated by what they're doing. But Biden succeeded because he wasn't a leftist, because he did speak to that center. He was able to reassure you know, those people that it was okay to vote for a Democrat because he'd be, he'd be okay. He'd be safe for them. And I think he's, he's actually shown the path you know, that, um, that we're going to see a resurgence of a center that will look like a Biden-defined center or something slightly to the right of it. And the, the real political dialogue in the U.S. after that will be between that center right versus you know, centrist, center right, center left, and, and farther left. So, as a futurist looking for weak signals, what is it the things that, what are the beginnings for you, if you were to see, that suggest that things are starting to change? I would expect to see the Republicans continue to diminish in numbers and influence. Um, the Trumpist, the Trumpist view, you know, side of things, is be, they're being pushed to the fringes. And if that push continues, it's a very healthy thing makes room for this, this more centrist kind of view. And it's not that I'm a political centrist. I'm really not. But I see this as a much better thing for the country, certainly, than having the Trumpists surround it. I would see the Bidenite you know, um, po- politics strengthen. Um, he's doing a good job of bringing the left in along with him. He's a, he's a wonderful unifier um, in a lot of ways, at least so far. And I, I would expect that to see that continue. I would start seeing institution building, really good institution building in the center. And I would expect to see... You know, Fund, good funding behind it. Um, I think the Lincoln Project had the possi- had the potential to be one of those institutions, but it kind of blew itself up. Mm. But yeah, I would see more of that kind of thing. The Scannon Institute. There are a few, you know, kind of uh, think tanks and things that are putting down stakes in this space. I would expect to see more money, more energy, um, really good thinkers start to land at those places. I would start to see um, them generate more media, some books. So I think that there, there's this big wide field in the middle that is waiting to be reoccupied. And it, it, it falls to that, that field to rearticulate. And the other thing I'm really watching for is a narrative. We need a new American narrative because we are not a nation that's based on blood or soil or common genetics. You know, we're, we are a civic nation, which means we need a civic story. And our old civic stories are falling apart. You know, we were realizing, you know, we, they told us a lot of untruths that we're having to reevaluate. But we're going to need a new civic narrative, and we're going to need it soon. A story about why we are America, what what makes us special—not exceptional, but what makes us 
viable as a nation. Why are we together? What is our purpose? What are we we trying to create in a world that nobody else creates? Mm -hmm. Um, What holds us together? What do we owe each other? Back to these these existential bottom level CLA questions, right? We need a, we need a firm answer to those, and I will know we're on a good path when I start hearing that story told. Can I ask one more? Which is before COVID, we saw around the world the young starting to take up politics. So we saw from you know the Greta Thunberg phenomenon where we suddenly had you know you saw it in America with the um, with the gun control after the shootings in Florida. Right, Parkland kids. We we started to. In my mind, we started to see a new militancy in the young. Mm-hmm. Since COVID, of course, that's gone quiet. Do you expect that the young are going to go along with the grown-ups doing the things you talk about? Or are we likely to see the young, when they get a chance, get back out there and say, you aren't going fast enough, you aren't going far enough? Mm-hmm. I think, of course, what we're seeing with Greta Thunberg and the Parkland kids, of course, is they're not millennials. Mm. They're the next thing. They're what Strauss and Howe how called the, 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 the homeland generation. Born, they don't, they're not old enough to remember 9-11, right? They're that young. But they're also what Strauss and Howe would call the artist generation, like the silent generation before them. Very technocratic, very subtle maneuverers. Uh, they understand systems better than anybody. They can build highly complex highly nuanced, they're incredible, capable of incredible nuance, which is something, of course, we're hugely lacking in this internet divided time, right? Which is you know, typically these generations are highly nuanced. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they bring that in. So yes, I don't, I, I think that that kind of nuanced technocratic institution building change is native to who these kids are. I don't think a year or two out of school or, you know, stuck at home is going to change that. Mm. I think when they come out, in fact, I think they're going to use this moment uh, for what Naomi Klein might call a shock doctrine moment. Mm. You know, we are, we are in a crisis. We cannot go back to that world. We have to build a new one. And I think those kids are going to be insisting as loudly as anybody that, you know, not only that we need to go there, but what that world needs to look like. You know, we've, we've made, everything's, it's broken. It's all broken. And now we get to rebuild it. Yeah, we don't go back to broken. We, we go forward to better. Build back better. As the man said, build back better, right? Sarah, it's been an absolute joy to talk. Uh, I've loved the I've loved our conversation. On behalf of the FuturePod community, thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to talk to us. This was wonderful, Peter. Thank you very much for asking me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.